head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, the hoogie king of southeastern Pennsylvania. It's Andy Greenwald. Oh, just here looking at water ice. Yo, hun. <laughs> I hope people are ready because for the next six weeks, this is how Andy and I are talking. Uh, we are so excited because today on The Watch, we were joined by the star of Mayor of Easttown, Kate Winslet. That was pretty crazy. That was an emotional experience for us because Kate Winslet is obviously an Oscar award-winning actress. She's one of the great actresses of her generation. And she is playing in the mayor of Easttown, Mm -hmm. a police detective from Southeastern Pennsylvania (laughs) with an accent that anybody with me and Andy's upbringing recognizes as nothing short of just the sound of home. And so we're so excited to talk to her. We'll be talking to her in the second half of today's episode. But first, we're going to get into Top Chef. Greenwald, how are you? Happy Thursday. It's Thursday afternoon, but we'll be putting this up on Friday morning. I mean, I'm just trying to... Sorry, I'm still hung up on this idea. You, when you, The way you phrased it, and we will get back to Mayor of Easttown later in the show, and to Kate, Oscar-winning Kate Winslet, first Oscar winner ever on The Watch. Obviously, people have pointed out Ethan Hawke should have won an Oscar, but that's, that's not right. for us to decide. The way you phrased it is very powerful, because I don't know what the antecedent would be like what if in the 80s, John Gielgud flew into town to play the guy with a diamond in his beard from the local if John Gielgud like took over like the role of Rocky's trainer, right? Right, right. right. But it, it, it's it's pretty unprecedented for uh, for the music of our youth, let's say, to be played on a Stradivarius. And that's what the show does for us. But we'll come back to it, right? Because yeah. right now we're going to talk... Um, I mean, let's see. Do you want to do some? You want to talk about your dreams? You want to talk about horses, or should we no, just no, focus no, no. on the I fact that we have a good a show today? Of, I think we've done. We've really emptied the journals on people over the last <laughs> couple of days. We can just get through this episode of Top Chef. It was episode three of season eighteen. Thrilled to do um, it. We had Mina on last week. It was so wonderful to talk to her about the show. Deafening silence from Mina this week. Now that the Sixers have taken over first Dude, place in the you, East, you, don't don't get into Jinx territory. Right? Like we didn't score in the last eight minutes of that game, and we almost lost to like Nick Claxton and Alize Johnson. 
I don't. That doesn't matter. I scoreboard. That's what okay. I'm about. Okay. I'm a results guy. That's right. Not, not a process guy. As a I'm fan. not even a watch the games guy. People know that. Um, all right. So let's talk about Top Chef. Uh, I asked you when we watched it, you know, what were your feelings on it? And if I may mm-hmm. jump in front of you here. Please. To set you up, really. Mm-hmm. You said Top Chef at its best. Yes. Tell me all TC about back. it. TC back. Well, I think there's two cases to be made for this episode uh, as one of the best in, in recent memory. And I think the easy first reason is that this was a, an inspiring challenge that took advantage of both uh, location, which we were excited to see because we were a little concerned that wasn't going to be possible during this pandemic-produced uh, season, but also took us on a journey culinarily and culturally, which mm-hmm. I think Top Chef has increasingly become comfortable doing. And the result was a whole bunch of inspired chefs cooking their asses off. And I mean, you know, Talenti layers will do that to you. Well, we're coming to that. We will talk about that. That was Top Chef at its worst, and we will we will speak on it. But as people know, I think, especially longtime fans of the show, this show is at its best when the chefs are at their best. It's really not as fun as you would think to see a lot of people fall flat on their faces. And so the degree to which people stepped up but also felt emotionally invested in the challenge, that generally results in great television. The second thing that I'll say is as a long-term fan of Top Chef, this was the almost revelatory reward for watching a show evolve over Mm -hmm. the last few seasons. This episode would have been absolutely unfathomable to a fan of this program three years ago, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. We've talked piece by piece as we've gotten into this show over the last year and a half about how a lot of the traditional metrics with which the Top Chef and its judges used to judge contestants have been inverted. This was the high point of that inversion and why it existed, I would say. And what I mean by that is, you know, we were talking obviously about how the show now definitely places a premium on personal stories, yourself on a plate, as opposed to technically correct risotto or whatever. But the bigger thing was, and chefs commented on commented on it in the episode, just a year or two ago, the idea of making every chef early in the season learn about, appreciate, and attempt to do justice to the food of the African diaspora would have been absolutely unheard of. So to, absolutely give, you, to, to give an example of what Andy's talking about, it was just last season that Eric and Brian Voltaggio were sitting on the steps of, I think, the Walt Disney mm-hmm. Concert Hall. Mm-hmm. And Eric was like, this is the food I want to cook. And Brian was like, okay, like, tell me all about it. Like, let's figure out how to do this. If I'm, am I remembering this correctly? That was the inflection point. That was yeah. when the, when the show Top Chef had been turning into, it became the show that it now was. And I think right. it's for, for the good of everyone. The audience, the show, the cooks. Yes, that was but the But not only was that like, y- y- like you said, calling it an inflection point, like, the the cast of the show feels and looks different. Totally and different. When they offer up a challenge like this, half a dozen chefs are like, I get it. Like this is yeah. this is my story. This is it, my cooking. This is my family. Let's do this. It, the show, you know, I think in many ways, 
this this comment might actually get broader than I intended to be, intended it to. I'll, I'll start by saying this: like I, I think that in many ways the journey of Top Chef mirrors a journey a lot of well-intentioned liberal people have gone on in the last few years, which is to say, uh, if you're looking for a certain type, uh, if if you're looking for a certain curiosity and openness towards culture um, and towards breaking down boundaries and using food as a vehicle to do that. I think the show has always been aligned with that idea, at least in principle, or at least in the broad strokes. But to your point, Chris, the the collection of chef testants hasn't really reflected that mm-hmm. often. The judges haven't always reflected it. It has been aspirational, but not actually put into practice. And when you see an episode like this, it's not just that they wouldn't have done a challenge like this where the chefs are you know, visit these um, these beautiful spots where they cook Guyanese food or Jamaican food and have to do justice to them. It's not just that they wouldn't have done that. It's that they just couldn't have pulled it off on any, any number of levels, one of which is it would have felt hollow if they had trotted out the same assortment of Voltagios, sorry mm-hmm. to paint with a broad stroke brush, but that's where we are, to do that and then have them be judged by Tom and Wolfgang Puck or Emeril or whomever. The show has put itself in a, in a position to lead by example, I think, and have an incredibly diverse cast, to, as you pointed out, many of whom were not just excited and intrigued by the challenge, but felt personally seen yeah, by the opportunities of the challenge. About, about like where they were going to eat and what they were given the, and, you know, given the opportunity to cook in the final elimination challenge. And the show has also correctly, I think, both for TV reasons and food reasons, empowered Gregory and Kwame to be kind of ambassadors to the community, um, and by I guess by to the community, I mean I could I meant specifically, um, I meant specifically like the Black American foodways community, but sure. also could it be the community of Portland? It could be the community of, of viewers, and the whole thing felt earned in a way that was that was really exciting. It was really something, and we saw that reflected in you know the sort of the personal details and stories, and also ultimately in the winner's circle. Yeah, a couple of notes. One, you're absolutely right about Kwame and Gregory being the basically the voices of the show this season. They've obviously had, I think, more to do with shaping how the viewer feels about the food being cooked than mm-hmm. Tom or Gail or Padma. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I would also say that when you bring in this kind of emotion, it becomes a different television experience for better and for worse. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I definitely was like gripping the armrests pretty tight as we went into the elimination. And it's just like they gave Kiki an edit that was basically like her in tears for half of the episode about how important it was for her to be able to reflect her, her family heritage in her food. And to have her in the bottom three, you're just like, Oh my god, man! Like it's not the same thing as as watching like Avishar maybe go home on like f- carbonating some grapes. You know what I mean? Like it's it's definitely like very loaded at the end. It, it is, and I would take it a step further to say that's also one of the things that made it so compelling and interesting because the reason she was on the bottom wasn't because her the flavors were off or her understanding of the cultural traditions that led to this type of seasoning or this type of preparation were misguided, or she didn't listen to the challenge. She was in the bottom because of a technical error. But it was the kind of technical error that the top chef of two, five, nine years ago wouldn't have even had a comment on, because it was about how she prepared fufu. Now, fufu has made earlier appearances on Top Chef, but it was never treated the way it was treated in this episode, which is as a staple grain, that is understood and ought to be a certain way. This wasn't food tourism. In a way, what came back and bit Kiki in this episode, thankfully not for good, 
was the same sort of thing that would have tripped up Harold Dieterle in season one if he didn't sear something correctly. That's a deep you know? cut. You just got there. And, and big fan of Harold. Well, because last week, Mina and I were talking about his restaurant, Perilla, RIP, yeah. great spot. And what I'm trying to articulate was there was a lot of intersectionality at work here in a way that awesome. was really compelling yeah. and really fascinating. You know, and who ended up on the top wasn't necessarily who you would have expected. Who ended up on the bottom wasn't necessarily who you expected. And the good-naturedness and grace with which all of the people involved in this show handled the collision of perspectives, cultures, attitudes was really uplifting, frankly, but also kind of kind of inspiring, you know, because I, I, you read sometimes about this that, and it's a cliche, that if you can sit, if you can break bread with someone, you can find a way to get along, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess a less pat way of saying that is that through food, we might be able to have some of the more uncomfortable conversations that we ought to be having. It's, it, it's a more familiar way to get into it about things that might otherwise be difficult to articulate. And this whole episode kind of articulated that idea in a way that was really compelling. It was really cool. I didn't think there was any kind of fake humility, but they also didn't dwell on any of the more, not humiliating moments, but like Gabe from Portland being like, I can't believe I've never been here when I think he goes to Akadi and he's just like, Mm -hmm. I didn't even, I I didn't even know about this restaurant and he's in, he's in the city that it's in. And he, it didn't, it didn't nail him for it. Didn't dwell on it. Like, look at this corn dog. Like he doesn't know. It's just like, but like, look, like it's, it's a big world. There's a lot of different places out there. Top chef more than anything has contributed to our idea of what a restaurant should look like, feel like what it should serve the way you should eat there. And it was awesome to get like a different, a different mode of experience there. Absolutely. And and look, you know, nobody needs to listen to this podcast to hear us stand up for the white chefs here. But uh, yeah. I, I, I thought that Brittany and Gabe, to their credit or to the editor's credit, played, frankly, they played the fools occasionally appropriately and well. You know what I mean? And Brittany being like, I can't handle spicy food. And Kwame being like, it doesn't have to be spicy. You just need to season it. Right. That's an instructive moment, and it was handled with, I, I thought, at least in terms of how we, we viewed it, with, with relative grace and goodwill and good spirit on both sides. You know, I, I don't think, and, and, and to take that a step further, Shota's success here in this challenge and is, also, yeah. is also really significant, particularly Shota's, though, I want to say, because this idea of spicy food or whatever, like, yeah, Japanese food generally is not spicy at all. I mean, these are spices that are just not present in that cuisine. But because he is a really, really, really talented chef, he was like, I understand intuitively how to appreciate something and integrate it and end up with something that is respectful all around. So, I mean, I, I, I was dazzled by all the little moments that led up to an overall entertaining episode. We could get back into the weeds of the of the you know. We the, can work back. I just want to say sh- I want to say shout out Don. Oh wait, let's end up with Don because I want to okay. shout out her at the end because she deserves it. I think we should start with the uh, quick fire, but also with one moment before it that I just want to flag. Okay. Which is, and you may have missed it because I don't know if maybe you guys are like this too, but generally when I sit down to watch Top Chef, I mean, there's a settling in period. There's the previously on, there's the, you know, the San Pellegrino is giving you this much money. There's the weirdly chosen cover of Food and Wide magazine that's just like, chicken, it's great. <laughs> so maybe you're still like, you know, getting a snack or adjusting a blanket on your couch or whatever. So you may have missed the moment in the like, let's get ready for today montage where our boy Avishar was shaving himself with a straight razor, like I didn't miss either that Al Swearingen or Keith Murray in a Def Squad video from the 90s. 
Yeah, I like, thought that that was that an was incredible wild. moment. I wish that there was a little bit more, I, and I would imagine COVID protocols have kind of changed this, that like we had a little bit more living all over each other footage and, and talking mm. to one another. Because Avishar, who I would not call, like I never noticed his facial hair before. Because you know why? <laughs> he uses Excalibur to fucking shave it off his face every morning. Like, and he, he's apparently like got Al Capone's male hygiene regimen. I didn't realize that knife skills extended into the living and domestic space on the show. Real talk, My, do you think you would live through a straight razor shave if you gave it to yourself? Do you, or do you think the jugular goes first? Oh, I would just end it early. Like, why, <laughs> why draw out the suspense? My guy was treating his neck the way prisoners and goodfellas treat garlic cloves. Like, and it was just effortless thin, to him. Baby. Yeah. He yeah. is running up my big board quick because of that. So, okay. So, so I had, Avishar, I had to great talk moment that. there. And then Avishar continues to be the center of attention because for the second straight challenge between the elimination last episode mm-hmm. and into the quick fire this episode, he, I think, brings a, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily call it molecular gastronomy, but like a certain yeah, a scientific. scientific flair to his cooking. And he made a local delicacy from where he's from in Columbus, a, called a Buckeye. It was the first time I ever heard of this, which is essentially like a peanut butter bomb. And I thought, given Padma's reaction yes. to the peanut butter bomb, I was like, this dude is done for. You know what I mean? She she, she just looked like unhappy with the bite. Um, she but, looked very unhappy with the bite. It also... I don't know whether it's the we've just been spending a lot of time with these people or they are, you know, they're quarantined. But I was just like, it's probably eight in the morning and they have to eat 15 desserts. Yes. Yeah. I had never I don't think I've ever noticed before someone get dinged the way Maria did for portion size. Yeah. Also, that was an insane portion. And, yeah. and she did it again in the elimination challenge, too. She just serves like a crock She pot. had that misfortune of going last, though. Right. Still, though, it was a crock pot full of pureed beans. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is, but that was like the first time where I also heard the judges like cry uncle. And there, Tom was just basically like, this is really good, but I'm full. I mean, that, well, we'll, we're skipping ahead, but that, I, I agree with you. It was exciting the fact that they loved all the food that much that they were eating enough to be full. But, but back to the beginning, I mean, it, it was, it was a roller coaster because Avishar. demonstrating that he belongs on uh, Peaky Blinders with such a riveting beginning. And then my hopes and dreams fell off a cliff when they're like, it's a dessert challenge. Not only is it a dessert challenge, but it is a branded dessert challenge. These are the two things that, you know, take your Buckeye peanut butter bomb. These are two tastes that do not taste good together as far as I'm concerned. Are you a big Talente guy? I'm, I, I have no opinion on the matter. Okay. Are you? Uh, no, I mean, I'm not not a Talenti guy, but it's never like the thing I, I reach for. Could you be if they were interested in podcast sponsorships? Look, I'm available. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think that like, that's the thing is like, I believe that we're trying to reopen businesses in this country. So as a business, I'm open. If you okay. want me to change your, my name to Chrissy Talenti, we can talk about it. <laughs> You're open to it. Anything is possible. Um, that said, yes, I was impressed with Avishar and surprised at the result going by Padma's reaction. But the main takeaway for me from that opening was Sarah is an assassin. Like, yes. the shtick lasted an episode, right? I don't mean her shtick. I mean, like, the way the I show is presenting her, her. Yeah, She is absolutely on another level. And the fact that she wasn't in the final three for the elimination challenge just says how good those three dishes were because her dish look, looked amazing and it got... And it was spoken of reverently. And 
yeah, she is on that Paul in Texas, Melissa last season level already where she's just half-assedly tossing out things that other people can't dream of. I mean, no one else even attempted to bake anything. Do you think that her gameplay style rather than her cooking needs to change? This is the thing that Top Chef doesn't really take into consideration so much, which is mm-hmm. like, it's on the plate. And especially, I, this is a very interesting comment that I think Kwame made. I can't remember about whom. I think maybe Nelson, where he was like, he keeps serving us the same thing, basically, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. And it's pretty rare on Top Chef that you hear anything but a like sort of new criticism review of the food. Like, you mean text lot, only, text based? Yeah, like I think that they try to go in blind on stuff to some extent. They don't really, I mean, like, yes, I remember Pava saying to, um, God, who's the guy who does Union in Pasadena? And I think that she would always ding him for his, for doing pasta all the time. You know, people I can picture have, him. Yeah, like people have been like called out on that like sort of repetition before. But for the most part, I think like you can kind of cook your food and, and as long as that plate's good, you're good. It was interesting to hear like some, hey, you know, like this is this third time we've had this kind of food or this is the second time we've had this kind of food. Like a space shuttle launch, I think there are three breakaway moments over the course of a Top Chef season. <laughs> I think the first breakaway in terms of separation is the people who just, there's some people who just can't can't hang, can't cut it, whether sure. they make mental errors early or they just aren't as good or creative They're a not chef there as yes. the others. Yeah. And they tend to fall away early on. The next separation, I think, are the people who can play the game, you know, and make the right choices, whether it's where they should be in restaurant wars or, you know, cleverly use the ingredients and take advantage of the opportunities to either jump ahead or kind of stay in the mushy middle. Mm -hmm. And then the final separation are the people who let the game come to them. And they're people who, no matter what occurs, what comes up, what difficulty they're presented with, they effortlessly integrate the the ingredients, the context, the challenge into their own cooking and worldview. And that is what we are seeing so far from Shoda and Sarah, without question. And it's what we saw last season with Gregory most of the way, with Melissa, obviously, all the way into the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of people kind of in that middle, and we're not really sure yet. But the the early signs of, of that kind of separation are creeping up where, yeah, like Nelson seems awesome. But he also hasn't really stepped it up. And, and w- well, we can speak about Chris whenever. But um, he's another one who seems like he can, he's technically skilled enough to be there, certainly. Sure. But there's that, whether it's a mental block or whether it's where he is in his development, it is not all happening, it's a, it's, all coming it's together. A, sometimes it's a matter of like having the st- skills and technique, but not having the imagination to go with it. I think Brittany has a lot of character. And I, I think that I would love to eat her food but like didn't necessarily have the mindset going into this episode. Like even early on, I think it was like, I because she was also, I believe she was in the bottom three. For she the, was shaken up last time. She started the episode crying because she felt that it was unfair that Sasha, that Sasha went, went home, home for something they did right. together. Right. So, you know, I mean, like we've seen people kind of claw their way back from those kinds of situations, but I almost felt like Brittany was saying in the kitchen in the in the elimination challenge and then once she got to the judges table like she was like almost saying like I'm not ready for this yet. Yeah, I mean that that the intensity of the show can be such that when you are talking to the judging table at the end it can feel like therapy. I mean these sure. people are broken down and exhausted even this early on and she was literally just like, I don't know who I am or why I'm a cook. I mean, that was when she was done for the judges. Personally, the red flag for me was when she was like, I'm really not sure what to do. I'm torn between my German side and my Southern side. And I got to say, the Semitic <laughs> side of me was like, 
that's a, that's a real that's a real Sophie's choice here. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think I'll just let you just choose yourself, and I'll uh, go over to the other side. That's fine. Not, not going to mess with either of those sides. Um, let's talk about Dawn a little bit. I think we could go through. I don't know if you had a lot of elimination well, notes. No, I mean just that I love the whole challenge. I love it when they go into a community. The restaurant tour was awesome. But and on top also, of that, I thought it was really cool because clearly if they're doing these kinds of visits, there's a lot of protocols that go into it. Yes. So I think any effort that they make to go out into the world, it probably costs them in production. It probably is quite a logistical like kind of undertaking. Yeah. And for I, I thought it was dope that the, the Akadi and, and Matilda's and these places were like the ones that they showed. I think it was Herculean to do that and bring yeah. everyone together. Um, and that, I think that, was that was a big full restaurant that they were eating in. Yeah, so I think you're right to point that out. I mean, the challenge of doing that, and they obviously, I mean, we not obviously we don't know yet, but I would guess they don't have a lot of those in the chamber for I a season. I imagine just we might not see that until Restaurant Wars. Yes, and so I was really glad they did it. Um, they did it here. I also want to flag we don't talk. You know, we don't often talk about bravery <laughs> on Top Chef, but Kwame walking to the restaurant and then eating curry goat and dipping food in red stew wearing that fit <laughs> I can't do it do you know I mean, how bad I've that gotten? was incredible so this is where I'm at mm-hmm. in in this whole process of of our lives since last March yeah. is like I will sometimes summon if not the courage the the moment of inspiration where I'm like I'm gonna put on a shirt with buttons mm-hmm. you know what Good I mean like I, I think I might dress up to sit down to dinner with my wife or something. And then there is like an inevitable thing where I put it on and I'm first of yeah. all, I'm like, I look and feel weird. Second mm-hmm. of all, I'm like, there is a, now a nine out of 10 chance that something I'm eating is going to wind up on this shirt. I just have no percent. concept of what's clean anymore. I essentially wear mm-hmm. and wash the same sweatshirt every single day. Mm-hmm. And like, so Kwame being there and having the just utter grail shit that he is wearing and then he's just like, we're going in, is like one of the great performances of the last year I've seen. Yeah, I find myself more and more I can't get often, through a dinner wearing like no. a Gap shirt. You know what I yes. mean? Yes. I, I, maybe I'm regressing, but I, it, I feel on the same emotional and just feeding myself level that I felt in when I was three years old and the only button down dress shirts I knew were the ones that I was allowed to take from my father's closet that he didn't wear to use as a smock in preschool. <laughs> like I am about smock life at this point. Yeah. I do not trust myself or yes. my hands in just the simple act of self sustenance. <laughs> so that was a wild performance by him. But frankly, everyone, and maybe this is because they had been quarantined up to this point, but everyone looks incredible. The judges like Amar is wearing these just wild out pants. I mean, good for them. Good for them. Celebrate, be your best selves on TV. Good work. So, but onto the challenge. It was, uh, it was a wild one. It was, as we said, well, they have one 90 of those. Minutes? Did they have 90 minutes to cook? Two hours I, to cook? Yeah, but I don't know how many. One question I had was, it's never clear how many plates they're making. Because as you said, it was a very full restaurant. And often when they have to do like, 200 covers and they have like eight hours or whatever, they make an issue of that. So I couldn't tell if they were really making enough plates for all of those people. 20 dishes for people. Yeah, right. Or because everyone was, I guess, you know, PCR'd before sitting down. Did they just drop a plate in the middle of each table and was like, no, they were serving individual plates. I wonder whether or not certain tables got certain dishes and then the judge's table got all the dishes. Do you know what I mean? 
but yeah, I did. I did the thing that was interesting. By the way, what also what a flex they have this season with this recurring panel where Melissa, who as everybody knows, not just because she was on this podcast, we think is amazing and a star and is a crucial voice and a judge now, just is at table nine. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And just like occasionally the camera finds her to be like, this is impressive, and everybody stops and listens. Like she's yeah. not even in the not even in the circle for this. What, episode. Did, what did you think of Blaze going going through from thirty five feet? <laughs> I respected Blaze. I, I, I was like, "What are you going to say?" Oh my god! I mean, Blaze, Blaze, Blaze just pulled up, double covered. They were trying to trap him, and he was like, "No, no, 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 no!" I, I am who you thought I was, and I'm going to be that guy. I mean, I, I kind of respected it. You know, there was a moment too at the end when they, I think Kwame was like to Don, he was like. In addition to winning this challenge and making incredible food, and we'd all like to buy your jarred sauce, he was like, Don, you are making the ancestors proud. And then there's this cut to Tom being like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's, okay. All right. For but I think, sure. But that's kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about these, like, interesting opportunity to have potentially uncomfortable conversations. Like, everybody was in on it. You know what I mean? And and I think that the show found a balance and obviously it can do better and I'm sure it will do better. But everybody walking into that room is aware that Top Chef hasn't done this before. That a lot of these judges or like Richard Blaze has not. Richard Blaze probably doesn't know what fufu is supposed to taste like. You know what I mean? And I bet he would admit that as well. And so, well, I don't know how that line of his was received truly in the room like okay he said it and then what you know and, just, I, and I kind of appreciated that an amazing time for white guys to be like I'll say it I'll say it it's like just dude the the elephant in the room <laughs> yeah um I just want to say so we could we we usually wrap these conversations about did you want to hit anything else before we get to sort of like the the, the final notes here no I think we should get to the fine like the the winners and losers circle yeah no I mean like obviously that was like one of the most intense bottom threes I've I can remember seeing so it was Kiki Chris and Brittany it's really hard to you know I, I, I after watching all these seasons I'm sure you feel the same way they still do a pretty good job of like you know fainting one way and you think oh my gosh like it really sounds mm-hmm. like they're gonna send Chris home here you know and then and then it's Brittany um, but you know I thought that 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 was a pretty intense one obviously Kiki her sort of emotional relationship with the episode was such that like, you know, it was really like watching behind, you know, watching behind your fingers to like make sure she she got through it okay. Um, I thought they handled that fairly well in terms of the emotional journey that she was going through over the course of the episode and why. Ultimately, I never fell for it. I didn't think she was going home because generally when you're trying to figure out who's, who's actually going to be eliminated, if they've praised any aspect of the dish they're probably safe. Yeah. And, you know? they and it like, sounds like her what's stew is very good. What's fine. It's just the foo-foo. Yeah, right. That said, I was pretty sure Chris was going home, except for too. the fact that they were like, you're here to cook, so cook, which suggested a future for him. Because, you know, the, again, this is, it's important to say that I'm praising Top Chef for some of, bringing some, starting some interesting conversations about race and food and American culture and intersectionality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera the show is not finishing these conversations. And so when Chris, a black man, is like, I'm kind of in a bubble in New Hampshire and I grew up eating some of this food, but I don't know how to cook it. So I'm going to do a technically correct French version of this. You could do a season of television 
about everything he's saying and sure. about what's happening on that plate. So I, I guess for that reason alone, I'm kind of glad that he didn't go home, even though it seemed like the show was tipping in that direction, because I want to see him work some of this stuff out and talk about it. And I think it's fascinating to observe. And, you know, Brittany was a gracious foil in a way for being the person who's just like, not only if I never had this food, I'm, I'm sweating. Yikes. You know, uh, but it, and it was an interesting counterpoint when she was just like, I'm not familiar with these and they taste, it tastes too bold for me. So I'm going to tamp it down. Yeah. Where Shota was like, this is too bold for me, but I'm just going for it. Sure. Sure. So, uh, Dawn wins the challenge. That is, uh, two now. I think that she is at least, she's either one or she was in the top three, correct? Last time with her, with the ribs. Correct. Um, so Dawn is, is, I think, trending upwards. I would still probably put Shoda and Sarah in a group of two. And then yep. Dawn right there at three with Jamie, I think. Yeah, Jamie's on the come up, which was exciting. Um, her dish looked amazing. And, and, you know, like, there's really little point in us doing these kinds of, like, power rankings because, technically speaking, you could fuck the dish up next week and no matter how good you were, mm -hmm. if you just had a, an absolute mare you would have a hard time coming back. I think sometimes they cut some people breaks for like cumulative performance, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, Shota could completely S the bed next week and, and he could be gone. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Cause his floor is so, so, so high, you know? Um, but in general, like the, I'm just pretty excited, not just for the quality of the cooking that we're seeing, but also the, the, the kind of, crosstalk and cross currents, you know, when, um, like when Maria, you know, is saying that I, I wanted tortillas, like this reminded me of Mexican food, you know, that's yeah, awesome. Let's have mm -hmm. more opportunities to explore that, you know, and, and just this, this bold kind of uncharted future for this show and for cooking shows in general, where it's not about conforming the food that you know best into one box that everybody can identify and judge on the same level. It, it's, it's not about that at all. It, there are, it just feels like there are no boxes and the show has embraced that. And Tom is nodding excitedly along with the ancestors. And I'm very curious where it's going to go next. Let's talk a little bit about Mayor of Easttown. So this episode's going up on uh, Thursday, late Thursday night, early Friday morning. Uh, we obviously are going to talk to Kate Winslet about the show. I'll set the show up a little bit for people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I think wanna... you can listen to this interview without yeah, so and, and they, then watch Sunday's premiere. Sunday, uh, first episode drops Sunday. I'll just give you guys the sort of log line of what Mayor of Easttown's about. It's about this woman named Mayor, who's played by Kate Winslet, who is a police detective in a small town about, like, I would say 45 minutes west of where Villanova is. So it, it's Chester County. It's it's out, it's out like just about an hour west of, of Philadelphia. Um I have not spent a ton of time there, to be honest, in my life. Uh, you know, I weirdly, like, I think spent more time in New Jersey than other parts of Pennsylvania as a kid growing up in Philadelphia. But I do know towns like, like it from my experiences in Philadelphia. And I think that the way that they depict this town and some of the hardships that it's facing is incredibly accurate. So she is a police detective. She's a former high school basketball star turned police detective. She's kind of living in a state of perpetual faded glory and also cynicism because of that faded glory. Um, and the show for, as obviously, because she's a police detective, we're going to have a central mystery, and I don't want to talk too much about the details of that central mystery because it sort of matters in terms of the first episode. I don't want to spoil anything. But I would say that um, this is one of the most human and observant and beautiful portraits 
at least in the first episode, mm-hmm. of a town and of a group of people and of a community, even though they are under incredible amount of economic stress, even though they are dealing with an opioid em- epidemic that's sweeping through the town, even though there's a lot of broken dreams, there's a lot of what I could have been versus what I wound up being. I felt like watching this first episode, and people will see Sunday night, like I immediately knew these people. I immediately felt like this was something that I hadn't seen before. And that the person who was making it, it's written by this guy named Brad Inglesby, knew exactly the story he was telling. You know, it's got a great cast. Gene Smart's in it. Guy Pierce is in it. Julian uh, Nicholson is great. Julian Nicholson is amazing in it. But I don't know, Andy, what did you think? I mean, like, we, without giving anything away, I think they bring, yeah. combine some of the best qualities of the kind of broad church mystery yeah. model with a kind of uh, like slice of life that we don't often see anymore. A little bit like Happy Valley as well, another great UK crime series that I that I, hopefully people have checked out. But, um, it, and I would say in the sense that when you watch a show like that, uh, usually a, a UK or European show, and it has such a specific sense of place, you kind of just wish someone could pull that off in America. And I guess it took, a, it, it took an English actress like Kate Winslet to do it. But when you watch the show, and I hope everybody does, because like Chris said, it's so far anyway, it's just fantastic. And I absolutely loved it. You will immediately pick up on some darkness and heaviness that is just part and parcel of our TV culture these days, and particularly stories like this. But almost immediately, I hope you'll find, like I did, that it is wonderfully counterbalanced with a deep sense of warmth Mm -hmm. and um, genuine heart and life underneath it. You know, it's not dark to be dark. It's the story of people who would much rather not be dark having to get up, put on their boots, and deal with it again. And there are moments of real real humor also in it, thanks primarily to, to Kate Winslet's performance. We talked to her about a little bit of it, whether it's for reasons that you'll see. She's limping extravagantly through parts of the episode. There's a, an incredible moment involving um, a can of spray cheese that apparently was improvised, as we learned from the great Oscar winner, Kate Winslet. So we're really all in on the show for any number of reasons, but obviously her performance is the anchor that kind of sells it right away. Yeah, I would say it's an amazing ensemble, but it's kind of awesome to watch a TV show like this and see a rising, uh, like the boat raise the tide rather than the tide raising all the boats. Or maybe Mm -hmm. in this metaphor, Kate Winslet is the tide. But her performance is at such a level. She's finally gotten revenge on the tide after Titanic. That's right. And her Mm -hmm. on-screen kind of magnetism is so intense that you're like, I'm, I'm watching one of the, the greats to ever do it get to stretch out over six hours and tell a story that I don't think would get made for film anymore. Or if it did, it would feel very compressed and it would be, I think, somewhat more cliched. Do you think she will come back on our podcast after the way we kept asking her to use her Delco accent like a I think she seemed, as soon as she knew that we were from Philadelphia, I think she was a little shook because she was just like the the auditors are here, you know, the the guardians of the galaxy are in the building. There are no two icons more associated with the city of Philadelphia and its busted knuckle blue collar (laughs) glory than the two of us. (laughs) Two guys who haven't been to Chester in 30 years. Yeah. Uh, All right. So why don't we, we can end it there. Andy and I will be back on Monday where we will be discussing the the first episode of Mayor of Easttown. So please check that out on Sunday night. You will not regret it. We'll also probably touch on Falcon and Winter Soldier. More shows are coming. So we're excited to expand the palette beyond Marvel. And yeah, uh, let's get into our interview with Kate Winslet. 
This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Hey, how are you? Hi. Very good, thank you. So is that an actual beer bottle or is it an ornament behind your head? It is a prop <laughs> beer bottle uh, from a TV show I made. But you should know, relevant to your show, it was originally a Yingling, which we are both from Philadelphia and yeah. we were so thrilled to see oh, on yeah. screen. This is oh, going to yeah. be largely a conversation about southeastern Pennsylvania beer choices. So I hope you're... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how much My of God. that you've had already today, but... Well, actually, a beer choices. I don't know how much we've covered, but Yingling and um, what else? What are the other beers? Rolling that we Rock. Had? Yeah, Rolling, rolling Rock. Rock. Rolling Rock. I get it. You were Rolling Rock, Rock household. That was a that was a bold choice, and it differentiated we were, you immediately. Ro- yeah, Rolling Rock household. I know, I know. <laughs> and there was much discussion about the Rolling Rock because it was another beer at one point as well that I think we couldn't get clearance on or something. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah. Rolling Rock and Charlotte Jameson. <laughs> Rolling Rock is available, I think. For, they, we just cleared them for this podcast just moments Two. ago. Okay, few good. Uh, okay. So we've already started, but we'll get into it again. We are overjoyed and thrilled and honored to have Kate Winslet on the podcast. The first Oscar winner ever to be on this podcast after nine years. Usually we have participation wow. trophy recipients. Yeah. Oh my so, God, how exciting. Wow, that's <laughs> thank a very you. big deal. Oh, yes. thank you for having me. And, 
And we are both huge fans of you as an actor, but particularly of this show and this role, not only because we are from southeastern Pennsylvania as well. And we're excited to talk to you about it. And since we have limited time, I want to jump in and ask you specifically about the process of becoming mayor, the titular mayor of Mayor of Easttown. Um, and I'm wondering if there was, and maybe this isn't how you work, but if there was a singular moment when you felt it snap into place and whether it may have been the wardrobe, because there's incredible flannels on display from the beginning. Oh, I know. Whether, oh, it, <laughs> whether it was the locations when you were actually, you know, in in southeastern Pennsylvania with Wawa signs in the distance, or was it when the cameras were rolling and you uncorked that first overdose? Because that's yeah. when it came alive for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so so did I nail the dialect then? Yes. It it was yes. thrilling. It was our love language. Truly. Oh my god, I'm so happy. You can't imagine like I think I think I probably felt, you know, I think I probably felt the most truly mare ever when because she's so sort of disgusting and yet charming and you know, she's lovable but she's loathsome, she's strong but she's vulnerable. You know, she's morally incredibly sound and then morally extraordinarily corrupt all at the same time. But I think for me, you know, some of the more mare moments were the private ones when she's on duty on the phone and eating in the car with her mouthful. Like these yes. are some of the like these were just these were just glorious moments to get to play. And and truly, like she became an alter ego for me. And I want to say this out loud now publicly, and I hope this goes far. I am much more like Mayor of Easttown than I am any character I've any played in any British period drama. Fact, okay? Fact. My mouth is almost as filthy as Mayor's. Actually, possibly even slightly more so. And I'm no stranger to a bottle of beer, newsflash. You see? You, know, I, you wouldn't I, think I, that I, of me. You'd think I was like some little dainty champagne sipping. No, no. I'm chips, cheese and beer, believe me. I don't remember the scene of you eating like a scrapple and egg roll on horseback in Sense and Sensibility, but it would have brought it <laughs> yeah. brought it more into focus, I think. If we had... I know, as would have been, you know, me putting cheese whiz onto the cheese ball and piling it up as high as I could, which was my idea, by the way, <laughs> added on the day. They had to go out and get extra cheese whiz. So I, wanted, I, I did it so many times, I destroyed several <laughs> bottles of that stuff. <laughs> that looks as, as comfortable as I have ever seen anyone on camera with you with two feet up on the table, a bottle of ice cold beer and a ball of cheese. Like you seemed yeah. incredibly in the, in the pocket there. And yeah. I was wondering whether or not, how, at what point did you start adding on to Mare? Like at what point were you like, she should be eating cheese in this scene or she should be doing this in the scene? Like how much of it... When you first started getting like sort of the feel for the character, did you start embellishing in with ideas of your own? That it, it kind of happened. Like I, I feel like as soon as I got to as soon as I got to to Delco and started um, and started really piecing the character together in terms of costume fittings and and really how she would look. You know that four inches of regrowth in her hair, where you know she just has not coloured it for for two years, you know, little things like that made a difference, you know, the vape, um, you know, just the mess, the chaos of her, the fact that she has that, she wears that barn jacket with a hoodie underneath, but it's really one item of clothing, you know, like they, <laughs> th those two things were melded together by God knows what. And, and the food, you know, the food and the drink aspect of Mare played a really huge part as well. And, uh, 
And I just, yeah, I, I embellished and added all along the way, you know, particularly Gene Smart and I, you know, yes, we had an incredible script written by Brad Inglesby, who is from that area. And he was just terrific being there every single day and letting us change things and play around. But Gene Smart and myself, you know, Mare and Helen, her mother, you know, their their relationship is is caustic at times. And they throw these verbal grenades at one another. And believe me, Gene and I just had, we just had so much fun. And we, we added things every day, you know, every day there was, you know, another curse word thrown into a scene. Um, and it was so much, you know, it really was just fantastic. I, I love that you mentioned the two-tone hair. That was the moment when my wife gasped uh, when we get the full <laughs> shot of that. And that was when I knew we were both hooked for the duration of the series. Yeah, my wife um, was like, only may- Kate Winslet can pull off those roots. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was a it, it wasn't an accident, you know. It was a heavily thought through uh, yeah. process. And actually, when you do see Mare in flashback, which without giving anything away, we do see, you know, it's a it's a freshly coloured head of hair. And you know, we 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 wanted to make that distinction because obviously, so much happens in her life that is backstory that amounts to essentially who Mare is in the present day and sort of informs every pretty much every action that she takes and every every breath that she takes as as well and you know that's what i love about the show is that yes it's 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 set in a small town and there is a murder that needs to be solved at the heart of it but it is very much about community and family and shared history that you have with people and and regret and forgiveness and it's it's messy and complicated in the way that a lot of you know real small towns actually are i mean that's what it's like where i grew up and uh, most people i and for most people i know it's 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 similar i think that's what probably chris and i both responded to very much which is that we we are both big fans of detective stories on the page and on the screen and what really separates them is when there is a truly specific sense of place and of life and of life overlapping and layers of society just bumping up against each other. And the show is full of that. And as you mentioned, the creator is from the area and you can tell. But I am curious, Kate, as you approach the role, you mentioned you arrived in Delco. Again, musical words to the two of us. <laughs> as, someone, as, as someone who has worked all around the world, I know you lived in New York for a long period of time. Did this region register for you? I mean, did you have a perception of a very specific place, sense of spirit of Philadelphia or its environs? And how did you go about educating yourself uh, to play this part? I mean, I, I have to say, like, I did live in Manhattan, as you say, for, for for 10 years and never once got on a train and went to Philadelphia, which I just is so ab- absurd and and wrong now that I have well, spent time there. And- everyone in Philadelphia spends all their time thinking about New York angrily and everyone in New York <laughs> never thinks about Philadelphia at all. That's the relationship. Well, I feel bad that I bought into any one of those demographics, frankly. Um, but, but Philly... I mean, I, I I loved it there. I experienced many a pretzel and many, you know, <laughs> tubes of mustard. I can I can tell you that it's a special place. You know, the, these townships that are filled with you know people for whom their homes are very important and community really means a huge huge amount. And and you can feel that it's a very sort of palpable um, energy that I think you get from from the place. And it was something that we really wanted to make sure we put into the show. Because it is the the heartbeat of of the story is East Town itself, and uh, and spending time with those people and really getting to know a lot of locals and working with East Town Police Department and Marple Township Police Department. You know, there are people there to whom I am indebted forever because they helped us so much. In particular, me. 
with the creation of Mare and, and the detective side of Mare, as we would call it. It was an amazing time. I loved it. I really loved it. I miss playing her. Like, it's crazy. I wrote to Brad Inglesby, our writer and showrunner, the other day, and I was like, oh, my God, I think I really miss Mare. What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> we, we have suggestions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Brad, when you meet someone who obviously has such a personal connection to the geography of where the story is set and, and obviously... Uh, I would imagine themes from the story. How much of a difference does that make when you're working with someone where the work is obviously like carved out of them to some extent, rather than it's just like a picture to twist on this story that we've already heard? Like this really does feel like a very personal work for everybody involved. Yeah, it, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. And and for Brad, you know, he would often, you know, he would often cite various different like family members or friends or memories or experiences he had at a, has as a kid that had absolutely inspired you know various different characters or themes within our show and 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 plus he has the he has the accent as well and so does his wife and so 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 having that available every single day was was incredibly valuable and uh and and added such incredible depth and texture to the entire story and and all of the characters within it um it was fantastic it was just fantastic having that one of the things that um, impressed me the most about the piece, and I haven't seen all of it yet, but you can already tell from the beginning, is that while it deals with heavy subject matter, it, there's a darkness to it. It's a very painful end to the premiere episode that we won't spoil. Despite the darkness, there is an, and despite the cold, which is quite punishing, even though no one wears sensible hats, which does track <laughs> with my experience growing up there. Um, there's a persistence of, I don't know whether it's lightness, I don't know whether it's hope, maybe it's just sort of a, the warmth of humanity, or maybe it's just everyone being pushed up against each other in houses that abut each other. But there is something there that keeps the show from sort of subsuming itself in darkness, which I think is a problem yeah. with, frankly, with a lot of prestige television or whatever you want to call it in general. And I wonder if that's mm -hmm. something that you were aware of as well from the beginning and something that you and Brad and the rest of the team were conscious of and fought to um, preserve a sense of life amidst the, the creeping Absolutely. darkness. That, that, that sense of life, that sense of shared history, that sense of, you know, people's backstories overlapping and intertwining. You know, we really built all of that because we, you know, you can't, as actors, you can't just show up and do the lines and expect for that character to be truthful. You know, there, were, there would, would have been a hollowness to, to the show if we had done that. So we did all spend a lot of time together. Rehearsal was very extensive. You know, whenever we'd have a new actor show up who hadn't worked with us yet, significant time would absolutely be spent with that actor to make sure that they felt really integrated into our world that we were creating. In terms of the brevity and the the the, the lightness and the humor that you're that you're talking about, you know, a lot of that was absolutely written in by Brad being very aware that of course we did need that, you know, and we put the audience through so much that you have to give them, you know, a few gags and a few laughs along the way. Craig Zobel, our director, was he he was he was really the like, you know, he was the person who would be like, we have to laugh now. Okay, I'm sad. I'm feeling sad. I want you to do something funny. So then Gene Smart and I would do something funny. Um, and, uh, and just wherever, wherever we could, really, we would add those touches of humor. Because even in the most distressing of scenarios, sometimes in life, you know, something odd or humorous can happen and allowing the space for that so that we could either keep it or discard it in the edit um, was very important that we that we did that. Um, 
And it's through, it's largely actually through, I think, Mare's relationship with food and drink, as well as Mare's relationship with her mother, that we're allowed to really see those things. And, and that's true, I think, also of mother-daughter relationships, which, which I know about and, uh, and, and appreciate and, and was able to, you know, throw into the show as well. I would also say her relationship with ambulatory movement because the limp. Yeah, the limp is me. great. The, the, the limp, the limp <laughs> is so real and so funny and so just persistent. It's just fantastic. But it's just so it's just so annoying, isn't it? You know, it's just it's just so annoying to have a limp like that, and it's such a dumb injury that did it. And I love the way that you know we did add this as well. That you know, as soon as she when she gets into the house and she goes right to the freezer and she doesn't get out an ice pack, she gets out a bag of frozen mixed vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> And props were like, so we have potato chips frozen. We have peas. I'm like, it's got to be mixed veg and they have to be diced and we have to see it on the packet. <laughs> I know. Is Mare's going to turn into like a meme, isn't she? It's yeah. gonna be- <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. We almost don't deserve her. I mean, it's too, <laughs> it's too good. I know. She is kind of great. I really miss her. Terrible. I kept her barn jacket and it's on my like hook in the house and... Um, you know, and the other day I put it on and just like sat on the couch and my 17 year old son turned to me and he was like, okay, you're scaring me. I'm like, oh, just for a minute, it's just a moment. Just let me, come on. He's like, okay, um, that's weird. Just let me say hoagie one more time. Yeah, I was going to, I was wondering, hoagie. do you have to just, because I don't, we haven't finished the series, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but Mare is an ex-basketball player. And I, do, do you have to develop an affinity for basketball and playing even just to have that mentally in your head while you're playing the character? Or is that a bridge too far for you? No, it was definitely not a bridge too far. But, you know, I've had three children. Like, you want you really want me to jump and land and not pee myself? <laughs> Guys, you know, there are limits. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, I mean, I didn't. I Honestly, I didn't go and suddenly train in basketball. We do not see me play basketball in the show. I felt legitimately this was okay. <laughs> however, however, it does say on page one of episode one, we meet Mayor Sheehan, 40s, an ex-athlete, at which point I'm like, okay, loud curse word. That means I now have to like be an, an ex-athlete. So I did, uh, you know, there were some things that I did up in terms of the uh, exercise regime, which I have to be honest, in the end became kind of critical to me um, in playing her. So I, I, I became obsessed with my Peloton bike, absolutely huh. obsessed. And I, and, and I would every day I'd come home from work and that would be my sort of my releasey thing is I jump on my bike and would sometimes just scream and yell and cry and sweat for, you know, 45 minutes and, uh, and stay fit. Hey, bonus. Yeah. Is it okay that we imagine you doing that with the Rocky theme playing? Is that a a bridge too far or is that appropriate? Go go there, go, go right there and and stay in, stay in that happy place. (laughs) So Chris is mentioning the basketball. I, I did want to mention one specific scene in the pilot that I just thought was really extraordinary. And it's the scene when you and the other four starters of this legendary high school basketball team are waiting in the wings to be introduced for this anniversary evening. And there's a great deal of tension and crosstalk and petty jealousies and much deeper emotions. And I just thought it was such a terrific window into a moment that we rarely see where women, all of who have had very different lives, have accomplished a lot or maybe not as much as they would have hoped. And within a second, they are back to who they always were. And they are, cannot escape the petty everythings that define them as teenagers. And it was really a powerful kind of moment and a powerful window into not just these characters, but the type of storytelling that I think Brad and you and the rest of the team wanted to 
to to tell. Well, a lot of that, you know, that specific conversation that you're talking about was absolutely in 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 the script. But there was a lot of embellishment, shall we mm-hmm. say, from me. You know, she's uh, talking to Laurie. He's like, "You love me, yes, you do." You know, the, all that that's, that was all that was all added on the day to the point that the camera crew who were doing a handheld shot would be just pissing up, um, pissing themselves laughing. And I would be, I would be saying to them, guys, you can't laugh because then I'll laugh. You know, there's like a thing that you, there's an unspoken rule. You're not allowed to find me funny if I'm being funny because then it will make me laugh and then it's not funny. So they were like, Kate, but it's so funny. (laughs) Um, but that is but that is one of the things though that I do love about our story is that you know the sort of like private windows on people's worlds that behind the scenes stuff that really does entrench it so entirely in reality in real life you know those are the conversations that do go on that those shared overlapping histories that people have that you can never move away from or get rid of um and do absolutely shape the town that that the show is set in um because of the people in it you know my parents would always say to me it's people not places mm-hmm. that's the most important thing in life people not places and in this case it's the people that make it the place that it is and that i think is is really quite standout and 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 is the heartbeat of of the show yeah well we we both love it I and mean, it's obviously it hits very close to home for us but it's it's really amazing to see such a very specific place get captured in such a universal way. So Kate, thanks so much for chatting with us today. You're welcome. You've made me feel so good about our show. <laughs> it's, it's so good. And we think there could be multiple seasons. Uh, that's the thing that you and Brad could talk about. And before you go, could we ask you to say hoagie one more time? <laughs> you get me a hoagie. <laughs> You're too kind. Thank you so much, Kate. <laughs> thanks so really much. I appreciate it. That wasn't even very good how I just said hoagie. <laughs> You're you welcome to do a sec take too. But... <laughs> This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.